HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. What's better than a fall weekend in Vermont? That's right. Absolutely nothing. The HRN team had the pleasure of attending Shack's camp in early October, and we haven't stopped talking about it since we got back. Shack's camp is a weekend filled with foraging for wild apples, frolicking in orchards, eating cheese, and celebrating cider, all hosted by the wonderful team at Shaxbury Cider. We stayed at the historic Sunrise Orchards Farmhouse in Cornwall, Vermont, but our adventures took us all over the Champlain Valley. I'm Jordan Werner, and in this episode of HRN on Tour, I'm sharing Shack's Camp highlights, both the educational and the slightly intoxicated. The adventures begin at Windfall Orchards in Cornwall with Brad Kaler. Brad is the owner and cider maker at Windfall Orchards, but he's also a chef and an accidental orchardist. When Brad and his wife, Amy Trubeck, bought this three-acre orchard in 2002, it was abandoned, seven years overgrown, and in terrible shape. We're walking around the orchard with Brad to learn how he cleared it up and what's going on in the trees now. We collaborate quite a bit, us and Shaxbury. Uh, one of the things that we're doing is you may be familiar with their lost apple project where they've gone around and sort of sought out these apples. Most of what they have found are chant seedlings, chant seedling being a wild apple tree. Uh, and they've given them names. And so I think there's a collection of 10 of the Shaxbury fruit that we have grafted into the orchard that we're trialing and just seeing, you know, how quickly they come to fruit, how the fruit set is, disease management, all that sort of thing. So we're uh, in the middle of that project. We started that with them about three years ago. So uh, we're probably a little over halfway done, maybe two-thirds of the way done picking for the season. Um, we have a lot of late-season fruit that you'll still see on the tree. Um, and uh, we'll pick for about another month. We'll pick right into early November, the last few varieties. So um, talk a little bit, and, and they may get more into it, Shaxbury. So the Champlain Valley, which is where we're at here, is the historic apple-growing region for Vermont. 
uh, and they've been growing apples in this region for over 200 years. Most of the, uh, if you're lucky, going back to the Lost Apple Project, a lot of where the, what they're looking for are old homesteads up in the uh, mountains uh, where people may have had trees planted for cider 100 plus years ago and those uh, orchards have been abandoned and, um, and those, that fruit may it still exist. Uh, so uh, there's been a long history and culture of growing apples specifically for cider in this area, for hard cider. So why don't we take a little walk through uh, and then we'll come back up and then we'll go in the tasting room and I, I'll pull out what cold bottles I have and uh, we'll give a taste. So here, we'll stop here. These are some trees we've started. These are grafted over. This is a Macintosh here. And you can see where the graft is. These are now golden russet. Oh, cool. And this is the first fruit. These grafts are, th these were put in last year. So we've got fruit within one year of the grafts being put in. So they, 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 we can get the fruit really quickly. So compared to say cutting the tree down and planting a new tree, you know, we have this beautiful tree that we can keep utilizing for many years. So that's why we're doing a lot of this grafting. It's a lot of work. Uh, and there's a very small window, only about two-week window in the spring that you can do the work. So we get done as much as we possibly can do, and then we wait till the next year and do more. So... And were um, these Mac trees here when you... These Mac trees, yeah. So these were planted, these old Macs were planted in the 40s. And, uh, and they, you know, they're virtually... You know, I don't want to say worthless, but they have very little value compared to Wixen or Tabinet or you know other fruit that I could sell for a lot more money. What's your breakdown varietal-wise? Like, do you have something you're growing the majority of, or is it kind of mixed? well Macintosh? Yeah, which is I'm desperately trying to change that equation. <laughs> so all the all the Macintosh trees in the lower section we have finished grafting. So here's an example. This is a, was a Macintosh tree, and now uh, it produces um, Major, which is an early season uh, English cider fruit. So that's been picked. So the tree I'm going to show you down in the corner, this is uh, one of the trees that we've been, we're playing with uh, some of the Shaxbury fruit. So you can see there's a bunch of different stuff here. So there's uh, three very distinct apples. Uh, this one they call Animal Farm. The little yellow one up top, which is as bitter as hell, is um, uh, saw, uh, Sawmill. And then uh, this red one is Cutting Hill. And it, uh, these are starting to jump. If you want to taste something really disgusting, yes. uh, like you want to spit this sucker out, man. This is like, these are so bitter. You're going to... This, I've got more, don't worry. It's so cute. Uh, those are oh. How does it taste? It's a lot going on. It rolls on you. It's, it is. Very there's nice. a couple yeah. more here. It's a woody flavor. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah. there's a ton of tannin in there. These are barely. Uh, <laughs> very oaky. <laughs> That's the most tannic of the apples. And then here's a couple others if you want. Those are gross. This one's more. Same apple. That one's sweeter. Not bad. 
I'll pass a couple of these. Uh, uh, again, these aren't really eating apples. These are really these are the Shaxbury cider apples that I'm working with. Thanks. So, so you can see how quickly this fruit comes in. And we only did these graphs three years ago, 2000. Well, maybe it's Yeah, these graphs are about four years old now. Dates on there. 2014, yeah. So you can see in three years how much fruit's coming off of those. Do you ever have graphs that aren't successful? Yes. What's like you the rate? It, in a good year, uh, 75, 80% success. Uh, in a not so good year, maybe 40 or 50%. Um, so yeah, so we got this is uh, you know some of the varieties. So this is uh, these were all done in 2014, so within three years. Uh, I think those dwarf trees were put in at 13 or 14. So you can see why I would choose this over that in terms of how quickly why well, cut this tree down in three years I can have it producing mm -hmm. all of this fruit. Freak tree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got this has 10 different varieties grafted on it. Uh, and there are four of them. One, two, one, two, three, four. There's actually five varieties that have fruit this year. And some of the grafts are probably a year from producing fruit. Is there a uh, limit to how many you'd put on one tree or as, as many branches? As, as many there are? as there are branches. <laughs> We're going to 10, 12, 15, whatever. Would we'll change the flavor of the other varieties? No. Typically not. Now, depending on the rootstock, it may that may play a role in how the form of the tree and whatnot. Uh, so, what's the actual process for grafting? Do you have, what do you have to do to prepare? The so branch? let's so let's take a look at this. so these this is a good uh, look at the graft. So basically, here's the original branch, and we would have cut the branch here, and you can see where we split it. See that split open there? So we have a tool that splits that open. And then we take the scion wood, which basically looks like this. It's a piece of wood, you know, one year growth, just like this. And see the buds, one, two, three. I don't have, do I have my, I do have my knife. So just to give you a, a quick tutorial. So we would have our scion wood, which would look like this. And then we would, um, we would trim this down. So it's basically like tree surgery. And if you can see here, what we've done by trimming this down is I've exposed the cambium layer right there. Can you see that? The cambium layer of the, the wood there. And so then when I go to put this in, so I've got this split, the cambium layer on the tree is right here so I try to put those in and line those up so the cambium layer from the scion and the cambium layer from the host line up and I've got two of them one here and one here and then I've got this tool which leaves that propped open when I pull that out the tension closes and then I wax the whole thing over the wound so you can see the little green wax it's remnants of that so here's one where there would have been two. This got some fire blight, unfortunately. That's why it looks like it does. There's one. There's two. Uh, we usually do two. Here's another one. One, two. This is one. This one didn't make it. This one I've got to cut off. So we always do two. 
case one doesn't make it. Here's one where there's two. And what I'll do eventually as they grow is I'll come in and then trim one of them out so that we've got one good branch coming. So that's a quick tutorial. And if you guys are bored and have nothing to do in March, you can come and help us grow. We'll be here. <laughs> so. Do different? Do the same apples on different trees um, mature at the same rate, or does? Depends on the variety. So they'll hold true the variety. So in the okay. trees, so the one up top there, I've got uh, I've got a variety called St. Lawrence, which is ready in August, mm -hmm. and then I've got a variety called Spitzenberg, which isn't ready for another week. So the August apples come in in August. We pick them, and then the branch is empty, but then we left them there. So that make it much harder to keep track of everything? Yes. <laughs> that's, why we, yeah, that's why most of the trees that we graft are like this, where we take and we graft the entire tree to be the same variety. I mean, they're fun to look at with all yeah. the different, but they're bitched. Sorry. So here's a tree. This is, this is a good example of So, I mean, this is actually breaking branches, so heavy. We did this tree, we started this tree in 2011. This is the first tree we started grafting. And so you can see, every single branch on the tree has been grafted over. The entire tree now produces a fruit that it never produced before. This is an Arkansas black. And so again, you can see the difference between keep a dwarf, put dwarf tree in or graft over. So this is 11, 12. You know, this is five, six, six years. And the one over here, which is Windfall Golden, is the same. We've grafted over every branch. And now we've got a you know, full, full harvest of fruit from those trees. It's a good thing Brad has plenty of them, because the Windfall Golden is a very special apple indeed. So this is the original, that's the Windfall Golden. That's the tree, that's the chant seedling tree that we grafted. These, they, they're not ripe for another three weeks or so, and they taste like pears. Look at that. They're really amazing. Can, that, there's no grafting. That's actually that's that's, the tree. That's the tree, and it's a, it's a chant seedling. Um, and Can you explain a little bit what that, that is? That is, sure. Yeah. So, so um, apples are heterozygous. So what that means is they don't bear true to seed. So in their cross, so in, during the pollination... Uh, uh, there's a cross-pollination, and so the seed in the apple doesn't produce the apple. So if I took the seed from that apple, it'd produce something completely different as a, rel as, as, as a result of the, the pollination cross. So every seed of every apple potentially produces a different tree, a different fruit, a, um, a different variety. Uh, overwhelming majority of them are terrible. And you, I'm worthless. You do, do it by decide? taste. Yeah. And about one every, you know, one every 10,000 trees might produce a decent fruit. And so this, we got lucky in this one. How, uh, this happened to be new? growing here. We, we uh, you know, it was buried with a bunch of weeds and sumac and we cut it out. And there was an area here where the previous owner would plant the, he would put the compost from the press and then he'd, germinate the seeds and he'd get those trees growing and then he'd graft basically onto the wild rootstock named varieties and so my hypothesis is that this was a wild tree that was planted eventually meant to be grafted and never was 
and that's what it is today. Because all the other, a lot of the other trees were crafted in here, but not this one. One man's compost is another man's treasure. Exactly, you got it. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you know, just a fabulous uh, of, uh, variety that's unique to here. We um, we sent some cyan wood over to John Bunker at um, up in Maine at uh, Fedco, and so he has that in his catalog now. So you can get, not every year, but many years he's got these. You can buy the little trees. Looking around the orchard, it's easy to see that Brad and his crew are in high harvest mode. The windfall goldens are still hanging on, but plenty of apple and pear trees have already lightened their loads. Uh, This orchard, I mean, I'll be honest with you, it's a small orchard. This orchard's really built more than anything else to be beautiful. (laughs) You know, it it is more beautiful than practical (laughs) when it comes to management. Mm. Um, so. How do you harvest? One at a time. Cool. By hand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One at a time. Two if they fit in the hand. Yeah. Depending so. on how big the, your hands the are. The things how big your hands are and how many you can get. These are one at a time. The big ones. So, so why don't we head up over to the tasting room yeah. and uh, see what I have in my fridge. Brad must be reading our minds. This crew is thirsty, and all this apple talk has us ready to taste the finished products. How many do I have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten. Is everybody trying? Oh, yes. 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 So the first thing we're going to try is the Orleans, which is herbal aperitif, made to be similar to a Lillet, and uh, is flavored with basil. Yes. Uh, flavored with basil and anise hyssop. And I'll explain the production method of this here in a minute. So uh, the way I like to drink the herbal aperitif hot summer day, it's not quite a hot summer day, but it's still good, uh, on ice with club soda and lime. It's really great. It's a cocktail mixer with vodka and gin. Um, so to jump ahead, we'll talk a little bit about the ice cider making process to talk about this process. So with the ice cider, we uh, store our apples and we press them in January. And we put all the juice in 300-gallon totes and we stack them outside uh, in the 10 below zero weather that we have here typically. Uh, not every winter these days, but most winters. Um, freezes out within three, four weeks. And we bring that frozen 300-gallon cider cube into the winery and start thawing it. And the uh, sugars, which are uh, denser than water, thaw first. So uh, we basically get an extraction of sugar uh, from the ice. And it's about a 20% yield. So we melt off to about 36 bricks for the fermentation of our ice cider. There's still sugar left in that cube. And so what we do is we refreeze it, bring it back in. We thaw it again. We get some sugar, but at a much lower bricks. And so that uh, second uh, melt, we get to about 18 bricks, and then we ferment that completely dry, which we use as the base for the Orleans. So in a sense, first melt, second melt. Mm-hmm. Trying to get a little bit more value out of it's a, you know, it. It's, just, it's expensive enough, and if you can just capture a little bit something else out of it. So I'll uh, have you bring your cups. So we'll move on to the... Hard cider. I will. Oh my God! It's like champagne. It really is. You know, when we open it, uh, because we do a method champenoise, um, and uh, it's a naturally conditioned in the bottle. 
uh, and uh, we, uh, it's really lovely bubbles. I think that held up pretty well, actually. Mm. So with our, uh, with our hard cider, we blend up about 30 different varieties of apples. And did I get everybody? Okay. Uh, and uh, we do a very traditional English style. We uh, do wild yeast fermentations, spontaneous fermentation. Uh, it's conditioned uh, for about a year before we bottle it. And then when we bottle it, we use our ice cider as the dosage for the secondary fermentation. So there's no added sugar anywhere along the process. Um, and you might even pick up a tiny bit of that ice cider at the very back of the palate uh, when you're on the finish of this cider. Cheers, everybody. Are you getting the yeast from the apples? Yes, yeah. So it's natural yeast that's in, on, the in, on the apples in the cider house. The whole, <laughs> it's been a long day. It's Which been a long week, and there's more of it. I could tell you. But there's still a No, it's a mix of 30, and it's about half and half. Half late season heirloom dessert fruit, so things like golden russet, Spitzenberg, Rhode Island greenings, and half English cider fruits so Wixen, Dabinet, Yarlington Mill. Somerset Red, uh, Major, um, Harry Masters, uh, I got a <laughs> and then we now that we have the Shaxbury fruit, we're going to be putting some of that in as well. So, yeah. So help yourself. It, 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 just finish it. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, can, I can't use it for anything else. The model got away from me. It's so good. And then we'll go on the dessert. So, the, and this is our two thousand. We just released it uh, a couple weeks ago. Are you holding anything back in aging some of your ciders? Uh, yes and no. So our hard cider, as much as I'd love to, it just sells. I mean, we don't make a lot of it. We only make about 250 cases. And so it's, you know, usually it's sold out. This year we actually managed to not sell it out before the release of the next year, which is, was really quite an accomplishment this year. Uh, usually we like sell out in May and then the shelves are empty, which retailers hate, uh, until September. So we finally got that in line. Uh, the ice cider, we're gonna try a 2012, um, of which I think I only have five bottles left. Uh, and then the 2013, we're also gonna try. And then the two, and I've got some of that in cellar, the 2013. So we'll be selling that for a bit, and we'll allow that to age. Uh, and then our 2016 ice cider is still in the tank. We haven't bottled that one. Yet. So ice cider. Don't mind me. So we're going to start with the 13. And sorry, the pour is going to be kind of small on this because I want to make this little bit get to everybody. I'll make the 2012 a little bit to pour. Uh, so this is the 13, and you will tell the difference between the 13 and 12, and I'll talk to you a little bit about where those differences come from. The blend of the apples is pretty similar year to year. Okay, did that set everything? Okay. So with the ice cider, we blend again about 30 different varieties of apples. Um, all late season heirloom dessert fruits. It's all no cider fruit per se. Uh, more sweet fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, the 2013 was a really big vintage year. A big, it was a big harvest year. A lot of fruit, um, beautiful fruit. Made a lot of beautiful ice cider. Uh, the 13 is still holding on to a little bit of acidity. So one of the things you'll notice when we get to 2012 is the acid levels have dropped a little bit. And so uh, as the ice cider's age, the acid levels drop. The perceived sweetness increases, though the residual sugar is identical. The other thing that happens over time is you can see with the color, a little bit of microoxygenation happens, uh, and that allows the flavor to sort of turn to a bit more caramel apple. Uh, the other thing, the other note about 2012 versus 2013, 2012 was a really horrible apple year. Uh, and we had a late frost, and there was not a lot of fruit, but the fruit we had was very concentrated. It was really an amazing vintage. So I think 2012 was probably the best vintage we've made of the ice cider because of that concentration of fruit. And 16 was similar to 12. And so our 2016 tastes really great. Very much, uh, I mean, it's got a ways to go to be this, but uh, it's similar. So 2012, for those who want 2012. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. And as far as cider in general, do you think there is a future in trying to age it? Like, where like hard cider? Or, yeah, um, cellaring and playing with older vintage. Possibly. Uh, I would say... 99% uh, of the cider that's produced in this country is made to be drunk almost immediately. What, uh, what varieties of cider have, so like, do you would, think would be better for it? Oh, for aging? Or there, that, that there's a few. So you would, so the, the craft produced ciders, so ourselves and Shaxbury and Farnham Hill, and uh, those ciders are made with apples that have tannin. The tannin is the key. So if you've got a craft-made cider with a good amount of tannin, you can age that. And uh, I think, you know, to me personally, I think a well-structured cider is best when it's between two and three years old. Uh, and we try not to sell anything before at least a year, you know, because it takes at least a year for things to start to come together. And then I think the 16 will taste even that much better a year from now when we're sold out. <laughs> <laughs> Apples. <laughs> it should taste like apples. I mean, it definitely comes through yeah. in your products. Yeah. Very clean. We do very clean. Yeah. It's like celebrating what's just there. That's right. I'm a chef. We just yeah. take the best ingredients and make them speak for themselves. Could you show us how you press it or where you press sure. it? Sure. We'll do it out in the barn. Cool. Yep. So we can take a walk up here. The pressing barn at Windfall Orchards isn't far from the tasting room. It's just across the lawn. When we get there, we see a big walk-in cooler which prompts Brad to share a little more about the rules of ice cider production and our neighbors to the Nord. Why wouldn't you just freeze the uh, juice for the ice cider in a walk-in and why do you do it outside? So uh, we follow the Quebec standard and the Quebec standard in order to be called ice cider it has to be done naturally. So you, there, are, there are producers who do it mechanically, but you can't use the term ice cider. So the, I, the term ice cider, it's like champagne, or there's a, you know, there's a protocol of what you have to do and how you have to follow it. Uh, and so for ice cider, it has to be between 8 and 13% alcohol, has to be at least, I think, 12% residual sugar. There has to be at least 10% residual acidity. 
and um, you have to freeze it naturally. So, so there are parameters for that. Is that regulated in the U.S. too, or just in Canada? Uh, we have created. There's a handful of us producers, and we've been able to um, uh, uh, basically impact that at the DL at the TTB. So we were able to get the TTB to create that as a condition for the labeling, so that you know if you want to have the ice cider label, you have to follow these conditions. So. Right by the pressing barn door, there's a big stack of crates filled with pears destined for Brad's elusive and delicious Perry. The whole place is a buzz. It smells so Should've good. Should have been here yesterday. It was like thousands and thousands of yellow jackets. Wow. Like it was insane. <laughs> we were pressing yesterday. Yeah. So, uh, so this is our humble press setup. Um, the apples, what we do is we wash the apples here. And then they get fed in, I know this all covered, they get fed into this hopper and this is an elevator. Brings the ele uh, apples up and then this is, there's a piece that goes over this. This is the grinding wheel, it spins, shreds them into mush. And underneath here is the press. This is what the press looks like. So it's a bladder press. So just come take a look. There's a bladder in here. And we hook that up to air and that fills. So there's a cloth that are in the sink. They go inside and this fills up with all the apple mash. And we screw the top back on and we hook the air hose up to it and then we inflate this a bladder very slowly and as that inflates it pushes the you know the mash up against the wall and it, all the juice comes running out how much can, sorry can you uh use bladder presses or are bladder presses used for other foods as well as from pears apples? uh you see the uh uh it's fairly new that you're seeing them in cider mm -hmm. uh they've been used in winemaking for quite a while Europeans have been using them for a number of years. These are made in Slovenia, and uh, and they're they're pretty ingenious and they're relatively inexpensive compared to. We're hugely grateful to Brad Kaler of Windfall Orchards for showing us around, pressing some knowledge into our brains, and sharing his spectacular ciders. Armed with our newfound know-how from Brad, we spent Saturday morning foraging for wild apples with the Shaxbury crew in Rutland, Vermont. And while the downtown of Rutland is known more for its seedy characters than its chance seedlings, we had a great time shaking trees and helping harvest. After all our hard work, it's time for a spritz or two. So we're heading to Virgen's to check out Shaxbury Cider's new digs. Shaxbury kills it on the hospitality front, largely thanks to partner Luke Schmucker and his camp counselor-like ways. It's probably a lot harder to wrangle a group of cider fanatics after a few glasses of Arlo than it is to get tweens to show up at a campfire sing, but Luke does it all with ease. More than that, he keeps pouring barrel samples. This, this year's 2017 fruit. Um, I'm just going to give you a big pour and divvy it out. Sure. Or just drink it. Or you drink it all. We'll all get your herpes. It's not fermented dry yet, obviously, there's still RS in it, but. Give me an idea. It's 
spread some love. Love that RS. Yeah, embrace the RS. <laughs> well, this is some Vermont cheese. Oh, you want some whistle pig barrel aged? Yes. yes. <laughs> Just do tank tours of everything. <laughs> Why you came here? I'm not sure it's alright before I give it to you. Alright, it's delicious. You're good. You're in good hands. How long has this been? Uh, it's juice from last year. We try not to put them in the barrels for too long because they have such a strong rye character that we don't want it to be overwhelming, so we want to be able to taste the apple. A lot of the high tannin fruit does really well in barrels, so some of the dabinette. Yeah. I'm going to pour everyone a little bit of this, and then we'll wander upstairs. And I know you did the Golden Russet single varietal. Yes. And the dabinette. Yes. Are those the only ones you... <laughs> Golden Russet, Dabnet. We've done single origin wild forage ciders before, like Twig, uh, like Twig Cuvee from Michael Lee's property. So we've done more of those, but again, it's seedlings and you're getting a bunch of different stuff, but it's from a singular location, and that's pretty cool to see that. But you, it's hard to do a lot of single varietals because you want to get that complexity and build it. Um, Dabinette's a special apple, so it works really well. But Is there anything else you're growing that you think will lend itself to that? I think so. We'll find out how well. I mean, as far as the, the apples that we're propagating, they're doing really well. It's a matter of once we put them into fermentation in separate tanks and see how they work out. Because, again, being a small company, you have... A limited amount of fermentation tanks as you can see so a lot of it is pre-blending placed on taste and then blending again before bottling to find out really where you want your cider to go shaxbury is about to have the grand opening of their brand new tasting room in virgins vermont we got a sneak peek of the beautifully finished tasting room and the more historic parts of the rest of the old creamery building this was an old creamery, right? Yes, true story. The first time I came down here was when you guys were doing the loading dock. Yes, the loading dock lounge. Yeah. Space heaters, <laughs> yeah. just keeping it rustic. Yep. Sign's still up. Yeah. We we made a tiny little tasting room that was like we have this now, and next on the list is figuring out. <laughs> we have this. Yeah. We have all this. The building's upstairs is massive, big enough to make us briefly consider bowling with apples. But Shaxbury's director of sales, Alex Gonsalvo, convinces us it's a waste of good apples. He tells us more about how Shaxbury ended up in this big old building. So it, it was pretty dormant for, I don't know, 30 years. Anyway. Then we came and said, we're going to throw apples everywhere. It's going to be awesome. Um, How did you find the space originally? Uh, Colin uh, just like got, got his nose in here, just like sniffing around. He's like, this looks... Colin is our resident architect too, so like he sees places like this and has a vision. And then like I'm like, no, dude, it's too gross. And then after he clears all the shit away, it's like, oh, I get it. <laughs> You know, like, this is a gem. Good job. 
because no one else really saw it. This was empty for thir- like a long time. So. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's full of dudes with hula hoops and apples. Do you know the history of the creamery? Colin does. Stick that microphone in his face. Colin Davis, who Alex describes as a sneaky yet knowledgeable fellow, is one of Shaxbury Cider's two co-founders. When we find him, he's wearing chemistry goggles, throwing apples into a growling machine. Um, so it was built in not sure exactly 1909 I think or 07 one of the two as a creamery so it was like a consolidation point for a lot of dairy farmers around here so they would deliver their milk there was like a structure out front that doesn't exist anymore and then it would get packaged um, and get put on the rail which is you probably saw yeah and go down to Boston, I think, primarily. Um, so it, w- it was that until like the 40s or 50s, maybe. And then it turned into, um, they manufactured like wooden things, bowls, uh, I don't know, like household, like paper towel holders. I don't even know what, kind of like random knickknacks. There you go. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, and then it was empty, for, and it was kind of like a, it was a touristy place. There was a passenger rail that ran back here, and people would get off, come down here, buy fudge and wooden bowls, get back on the train, boom, out. And then it was, um, I think it was empty for a couple decades, maybe. And I think they would use it for, like, random events, fundraisers. Uh, when we first came in here, there was, it was completely full of um, stuff for like a um, tag sale fundraiser, you know, so just like random crap from people's garages. Yeah. <laughs> and how'd you find the building? Uh, we were just looking for something that, <laughs> come out here. Um, yeah, uh, we were looking for a space that, um, spoke to us, uh, in a community that we liked, and so I guess, you know, that's sort of where we started, we, we really like for Jen's, we like the sort of energy here, and, um, the restaurant scene is good, um, and then this building, I've driven by a million times, never, never came in here, but, um, initially really liked the owners and uh, could sort of envision being in the space. We liked that it was an agricultural building to start off with and that the bones were beautiful, um, even if it was pretty shabby. So basically what we've done in the first floor here is just, it was covered in like all the walls had um, barn board over it. Um, Some of the ceiling did, there was like some there's like a big like checkout counter thing down the middle. So we basically just like ripped everything off and that's and then put some plumbing in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so kinda like our test kitchen. Yeah. So our specialty stuff. Like that this press 
um, does it's it's like one tenth the size of the press that does most of our stuff. But what it allows us to do is to have you know interesting batches of apples come in, and we can really like keep track of it and treat it in certain ways, and even pull off like a gallon. You know, if there's a particular apple that we want to um, test. So everything here is sort of geared on uh, limited release and smaller scale. All of our cider club ciders have come out of here. Yeah. Once again, all of this cider talk has us pretty thirsty. There's a lot to try at Shaxbury, and we're headed to the tasting room to sample all of it. David Dolganow, Shaxbury's other co-founder, is behind the bar. Did you already have the Dabinette? I did. Yeah. Can I try just like a plain, like, dry and semi-dry? Which lost the boundary of wine? 15. 16's like close, but not quite there yet. How long do you think that? We're going to release it in like two weeks. So it's doing the secondary fermentation in the bottle, and then it needs to just kind of set, hang out for a little while, and then it's good to go. Um, but I'm sure we'll be popping some bottles of it just to see later on. Or, bet if you went and asked one of the pros down there, they'd, they'd find one of those unmarked bottles and make it happen. <laughs> um, so, if you were to come in and order a flight today, we're doing the citrus spritz, and then dry, semi-dry, and finishing with Arlo. And then the um, limited releases that we're pouring today are uh, a 15-month barrel-aged single varietal Dabinette cider that we just called the Dabinette, and our 2015 Lost and Found, which is our flagship cider made from wild apples foraged throughout the Champlain Valley. You guys know about that now. Yeah, cool. Can you tell us about the Arlo name? Yeah. Arlo, Arlito, is, uh, is named for Colin, one of the co-founders um, uh, bulls. So Arlo is a Scottish Highlander cow, so long hair, long horns. They're also pretty short and like kind of stocky. We'll go visit Arlo tomorrow. And he, Arlo likes to eat apples, and he's a little cantankerous, just like Arlo the cider. <laughs> So and Arlo's um, unfiltered, and it's naturally carbonated, so it's can-conditioned, bone-dry, no residual sugar, and it's like a sour beer lover's cider. With the promise of meeting Arlo in the morning and drinking unreleased Lost and Found at dinner tonight, we'll let Luke wrangle us back to Sunrise Orchards. When we get there, we're greeted by Chef Irene Lee of May May in Boston, Irene knows what a bunch of applesauce cider nerds really want, scallion pancakes. And she's great at teaching us how to make them. Her directions of flat pancake, snake, snail, flat pancake, may be meant for Colin's four-year-old son, but we're on the same level after all of that cider. Huge thanks to Brad Kaler of Windfall Orchards, Irene Lee of May May, and Luke, Colin, David, and Alex from Shaxbury Cider for an incredible weekend. We're so happy that the HRN team was included in Shaq's camp and excited about all the great things going on in the cider wonderland of Vermont. This has been a special episode of HRN On Tour. Thanks for listening. <laughs>